So Hebrews 13, you can see clearly this is the last chapter of a very long letter, 13 chapters. And verses 20 and 21 are the concluding statements of the whole letter. And then after this will come some personal greetings um, from the author. But here we find everything that was written, and Hebrews was written to um, weak and wobbly Christians, a church that was in a distressed and unsettled state and, and um, were questioning their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, wondering um, did we make a mistake and why are we suffering and is God with us and, and um, our, our friends, our fellow, um, our former uh, uh, friends in Judaism, uh, our, our relatives, our family members, um, they're challenging our faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They're quoting the Old Testament and saying that he really can't be the Messiah. You've got it wrong. You have to come back to the synagogue. You have to come back to the temple. And so God raises up the author here. And we're not sure who actually is the author, but it's, it's the word of God. And he writes these things to strengthen them. And by this, we have a tremendous book in the Bible that helps us Take a look at what Jesus has done and relate it to what came before him, the temple, the priest, and so on. So Christ is the high priest. He's the offering that ends all offerings, and he's the one who actually brings in the everlasting covenant, which he also called the new covenant. So he comes to this last part, and you know I've been taking each clause in verse 20 and, and a whole message on each clause and we could have just taken the two verses and um, taken them in their overall statement. But I think because Hebrews is summarized in these last two verses, it's a good idea to make sure we, we understand where each of these clauses comes from for understanding the, the fullness of this con these concluding statements. So it's a two-sided statement. Uh, it's addressed, first of all, to God and then to what God wants to do in you and me. So he says, now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, and this is God, and then this is what God intends for you and for me, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're, we're looking at now where it says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So he says, now may the God of peace do these things in you. May the God of peace, verse 20, do these things in you, verse 21. But then he describes God, our God, the God of peace. He's the God who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. And then he tells us who that is, Jesus Christ. He is that great shepherd of the sheep. And we began to see that Jesus performs a greater exodus. And if you carefully pay attention to the Old Testament, you'll notice that the Old Testament looks at exodus as the paradigm, the model, the pattern of salvation. God's people were slaves in Egypt. And then God delivered them, rescued them, and brought them to their own land that they might be their own nation, God's nation, and live there forever. You and I were slaves of sin. He rescued us from that power of sin 
and then brought us into a new life, a new land. We're headed to the new heavens and a new earth. So Jesus actually fulfills that exodus in the greater exodus. So you see the high priest in the Old Testament? Jesus is the great high priest. And you see the sacrifices over and over and over again made by all those priests. Jesus is the final sacrifice. No more sacrifices need to be made. So he offered himself as the perfect final sacrifice. And then we are completely made right before God through Jesus, what he did. So he's the greater exodus that the former exodus was pointing to. So the way he writes this at the end of verse 20, the God of peace, he's the God who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. It's almost like a name, a title for God. He's the the resurrecting God who raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead. And Jesus is that great shepherd of the sheep. Remember Moses who led the people of God out of of Egypt? Jesus is the greater Moses. Where did Moses end up? In the wilderness. He never went into the promised land. What does Jesus do? He does take us from the law. Grace comes and we're in the promised land. We are new creations in Christ. And so he's that great shepherd of sheep. But how did all of this happen? Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And this this phrase, through the blood, is a causal phrase. And what our author intends for us to understand is that the God of peace who reconciles God and man, remember when the angels were announcing to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men, the peace that he was talking about was not Oh, finally, I can get some peace and quiet. But it was peace, holy God, sinful man, holy God who must punish sinful man. I'm in trouble. I'm going to be punished. He makes peace through Christ and through the blood of his cross. Sinful man and and holy God are brought together. So now he's father and we're sons and daughters. No longer our judge. Sin paid for our father, Christ our Lord and our Savior. And we are... We're now the dwelling place of God. We were outside of the dwelling of God, separated. Now we are the dwelling place of God. So the God of peace, and he brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. Absolutely essential, of course, that great shepherd of the sheep who's going to lead us to the promised land forever. But what's essential here, how did he do it? He did it through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So what you find here is, that the blood of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ is the basic and fundamental and indispensable reason why we can be saved. It's why there was a resurrection. Think about it. Out of all the human beings that ever lived, there was only one resurrection until Christ came. Before that, well, we know about Enoch, but that was not a resurrection. Elijah, but that was not a resurrection. But when Jesus died, the graves were opened, and many of the saints walked. You know, when, when, and, you know, that's a mystery too. Lazarus was raised by Jesus, even Elijah and Elisha raised some people, but it's our understanding that they were not resurrections, they were resuscitations, and they would die. But Jesus was raised from the dead never to die. 
And he was the beginning of resurrection, so that when you and I are raised from the dead, we'll be raised with a body like his that will never die. And so when we talk about the God of peace, the reason for our peace with God, reconciliation with God, is the blood of Jesus Christ, the penalty that he paid. When we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's because before Jesus was raised from the dead, he died as a sacrifice for our sins. He had no sin. Well, why did he die? He died for our sins. You could say, well, we have to blame those terrible people that crucified him. But that was God's will. That was God's plan. They did wrong, but they fulfilled the plan of God from eternity. And so when he died and paid for our sins, because God, his father, received his offering on our behalf and accepted what he offered for us because it was the plan of God, death could not hold him. He was raised from the dead. And so we have this greater exodus. Now, there's an interesting background to this because when you read the Old Testament, like I said earlier, it's always looking back to what God did for his people in the exodus. And there's times when God's people go astray and the, and the prophet says, don't you remember what God did for you? Don't you remember we were slaves? We were as good as dead. Don't you remember the Red Sea? Don't you remember how God brought us out of all that and brought us and gave us our own land? Why are you going after these other gods and goddesses? What's wrong with you? How could you do that? And then the prophets are always often going back and saying, don't you remember what God revealed to Moses, how we are to live? Why are you living this way? Why are you offering your sons and your daughters to this God to be burned as a sacrifice? What, what's going, why are you living like that? Why are you doing these terrible things? Don't you remember God delivered us from all of that? And, and so uh, in the Old Testament, you've got places where how the prophets talk about Israel and what God did for Israel, you begin to, when you have eyes to see, and that's what I'm hoping to do with Hebrews here, is you begin to say, wait a minute, that doesn't just apply to the, the people of Israel. This is pointing to what God's going to do for us. And I want to show you one of those places. So it's Zechariah 9, verse 11. So if you can find Zechariah, because you probably haven't read Zechariah lately, I hope you have, but in case you haven't, um, it's toward the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah 9. Now, a little bit of uh, information for you here. The Old Testament, in, um, over time, the Old Testament um, was translated into the Greek language because so many of God's people no longer really spoke Hebrew or could read Hebrew. And of course, a lot of people couldn't read and a lot of people didn't have scriptures in their homes like we do. And so, um, so there were uh, Jewish men who uh, translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language. And lots of times in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers refer to a scripture in the Old Testament, they will use the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation. And that's what you have here. And some of the phrasing here in Hebrews 13, 20 is a reflection of this in Zechariah 9. Now let's take a look at this. Zechariah 9, verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Interesting. 
He says, because of the blood of your covenant, see the causal relationship? Because of the blood of your covenant, he says, what I'll do, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And in the Old Testament here, waterless pit begins to take, it's a figure, it's a metaphor for the state of death, the state of hopelessness. You're, you're in this state where you can't rescue yourself. You can't do anything about, about it yourself. So the idea here is through the blood of the covenant, those who have been prisoners of death, who cannot help themselves, set themselves free, are freed. And this is in the background to what he says here, that God, the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, He brought out Jesus. He led Jesus out from the dead, who's the great shepherd of the sheep, through because of the blood of his everlasting covenant. And Zechariah is referring to what God does to rescue his people. Now, let's widen the context. Take a look at verse 9. Tell me if you recognize anything here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Recognize that? We call Palm Sunday the triumphal entry. Zechariah is saying, look, open your eyes, your king is coming. Some more here. In verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. In other words, he's going to stop those who are making war against his people to destroy them. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations, the God of peace. His dominion shall be from sea to sea. Now, you first you think, Uh, What does this mean? Is it from the Mediterranean Sea over to the Red Sea or the the Gulf of Persia or or what's going on here? And then it says, and from the river, which generally means the um, Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. So you think, wait, he's promising our king is going to come. And then then I think I'm a Jewish man. I'm thinking, but David's our king. That's right, God promised to David and Solomon an heir to the throne who would take up the throne and never die, and he would rule us forever. We begin to see the different prophecies and predictions in the Old Testament, not just way back in David's time, but later on here in Zechariah, this prophet speaking of it. And then it says, as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant. And remember, when God brought Israel out of Egypt... He took them to the mountain, Mount Sinai. God came down and met with them there, and the place was just terrifying because this mountain turned into what looked like a volcano and an earthquake and a tornado, and it was all on fire, and it looked like they were going to die all at one time. And God made a covenant with them, and the blood of an animal shed in making that covenant. and was pointing to God who was going to come on this earth and die on a cross and pay for our sins. So as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Then he says, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double for you, for I have bent Judah, my bow, 
fitted the bow with Ephraim and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Victory. And then you read in the book of Revelation when all the nations gather to destroy God's people and fire comes out from heaven and destroys them. And when Satan is loosed at the end of the millennium to gather all the nations together against his people, he can't do it because Jesus died and rose again. And the um, judgment was cast upon Satan. And remember in Revelation 12, there's war after Jesus dies and rises and ascends to heaven. There's war between Michael and his angels and the devil and his angels, and the devil loses and he's put out of heaven. And he comes down to earth and he's in a rage and he's going to try to gather all the nations up to kill God's people and destroy them. But it can't happen because Satan lost at the cross. And remember when the beast came out of the sea and he had these heads and one of them was mortally wounded like it was going to die. And it didn't die. Well, that's when Jesus died on the cross because that's when Satan was mortally wounded. That's when he really did die. And it only looks like Satan didn't die. It only looks like he's still out there doing his thing. Christ has already won the victory. He's crushed the serpent's head by dying on the cross and paying for our sins and rising again. See, everything in the Old Testament was rushing forward to, pointing to Christ's coming. That's the most significant event in all the Bible is the coming of Christ. And then, of course, he will come again and finish his work after all God's people that have been planned to be saved throughout all from eternity past, they will be brought to faith and then there will be this great war where the devil will be loosed again to try to wipe out God's people and he will not do it. He cannot do it because of the victory. So here in the Old Testament, you see this greater exodus that's being pointed to, an exodus that will not end in failure like the first exodus did. Because what happened to God's people after the first exodus? Well, right off the bat, what's going on in the wilderness when they're headed to the promised land? They're murmuring. They're grumbling. They're complaining. Why did you bring us out here to die? Oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. We used to eat good back there. They were slaves back there. And then, of course, they got to the promised land after 40 years. It took them 40 years for a 15-day journey. And on and on it went. They kept turning against the Lord, and God kept warning them and kept warning them. And then in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was crushed by the Assyrians. And then later on, 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, was crushed by Nebuchadnezzar. The temple destroyed and the holy objects in the, in the tabernacle, I mean the temple, were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and put in his own pagan god temples. And it seemed everything was over. Everything was done. But not so. Now, we have to look at this. Jesus was led out from among the dead. Like it says in Hebrews 13. The God of, pre, of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus or led out our Lord Jesus from the dead by virtue of his unique and unrepeatable pouring out of his own blood is the God who brings ultimate victory to his people. Even though Israel failed over and over again. Who else failed in Israel? Every other human being failed. Even David, who seemed to be doing so well, Bathsheba. Solomon, the wisest man in all the earth. Surely he's the one who's going to get God's people on track. What happened? Kept marrying women, having concubines. They turned his heart to worship other gods. 
And the Bible says, where can I find a man? I've looked and I can't find a man anywhere. Until Jesus Christ comes. The greater Exodus. The greater Moses, the great shepherd of the sheep. The greater sacrifice, the great high priest. Ah, we're going to be saved. It's going to turn out okay because Jesus has come. And that's why his blood is the blood of the everlasting covenant. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to God by faith. That's what a covenant does. It brings two or more parties together, makes them one. And so God brings all of us together through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And now we walk with him and he walks with us. We live in Christ and he lives in us. And it's an everlasting covenant. It's the new covenant and it's the one that is fulfilled by Jesus Christ, his coming, what he did. So the first Exodus covenant was conditional upon its fulfillment. Now this is very important. You need to get this before we're finished tonight. Because you have to ask yourself the question like, like Paul uh, struggled with in Romans 9, 10. I don't mean he struggled that he didn't know. But he was in Romans 9, 10, 11. He's talking about, well, whatever happened to Israel? Did God give up Israel? Did he just walk away from them? And let you know, said, I'm done with them? No, no. Israel was saved by Jesus Christ, but expanded so that both Jews and Gentiles are saved together in one body, in, the, in Christ. Now let's watch this together. We need to see this. There is a sense in which the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai after the Exodus was a conditional covenant. That covenant that God made with them had to be fulfilled or else it, couldn't, it wouldn't work, it wouldn't last. That's why there's a first covenant and why there is a second covenant. That's why there's an old covenant and why there's a new covenant. But even in the first covenant, the old covenant, there's a promise that the covenant would be fulfilled and all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I want to finish tonight by talking about that. Look at Exodus 19, 1 to 6. Now here we are out of Egypt before God at Mount Sinai. And God makes this covenant with his people, Exodus 19. Exodus 19, 1, verse 1. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. So here they are, all God's people, saved out of Egypt, and they're gathered before God. God's going to come down, make this covenant with them. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Yes, he, he destroyed them. And he says, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's, that's just another picture, being saved by grace. See it? They didn't work and earn their salvation. They were slaves. They were hopeless. They were helpless. And he came in. And save them by his grace and mercy. And tell them that I bore them on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if, big word, right? Two letters, if, huge. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then, if then, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And what's going to happen? You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So what had to happen for that covenant to be fulfilled that they would become a kingdom of priests and a royal, a holy nation? They had to obey the covenant, right? Did they in fact obey that covenant? Think about it. So God brought all the people together. Moses came back down and says, God's going to meet with us in three days, so let's all get together. They had to wash themselves and clean their clothes and all of that. And then God spoke to them, the Ten Commandments. And what did the people do right away when God spoke to them? They were terrified. And they said, Moses, you go up and talk to God. That's a good and a bad beginning. It's good in that they still wanted Moses to go up and talk, and they realized God was holy, and this, is, this, is, this could be trouble. But it was bad because when God spoke to them, instead of saying, wow, we worship you, they were terrified. And they wanted somebody else to go talk to God. So, what's going on? Then read the history of Israel. Generation after generation went astray. Leader after leader went astray. Even the great leaders and the good leaders eventually messed up somewhere along the line. They did not, they did not fulfill the covenant. Moses led them for 40 years, remember that? And after 40 years, they were going to go into the promised land. Anybody know what happened to Moses? He sinned and God said, you're not going in the promised land. Moses, all those years? Who took them into the promised land? Not Moses, but Jesus. Joshua. That's just another name for Yeshua. Joshua. There's the point there saying, the law, you can't obey it. You can't fulfill it. But Jesus will. The greater exodus. The greater promised land would be Jesus. Now, take a look at Matthew chapter 7. Now, when Jesus said this, nobody understood this. Nobody captured this. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. None of his disciples, the only, I think the only, the, only, the only persons who knew what was going on here was God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Look at this, Matthew 7, I'm sorry, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but what? To fulfill. He fulfills the demands of the covenant. He obeys all the laws that God gave to Israel from the mountain. And thereby, he offers himself a holy, perfect, pure sacrifice to pay for our sins through the blood of the everlasting covenant, and he provides our sin debt to be paid, and then we get his righteousness. So he fulfills the law of Moses, and his righteousness avails for our right standing before God by faith. So we are completely and totally saved by grace, apart from works, by believing in Jesus. Did I fulfill the law? Yes and no. 
No, I didn't fulfill the law. I've sinned. But yes, because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you deserve to go to hell? Yes, I deserve to go to hell. But I'm not going to hell because Jesus paid for my sins. And that's the blood of the everlasting covenant. See? That's how it works. So that's why history was, went on for so long. Just think, God is really showing you that no one can fulfill the law. That the law is like a teacher that teaches us you need Christ. You cannot keep the law. The law will only damn you forever. But Christ will save you forever. So now we have this first covenant and new covenant. Everlasting covenant. So let's just finish with looking at um, places in the Hebrews where this is brought out very clearly. Hebrews chapter 8. So you, are you following along here? Are you, are you grasping this? It's very important because um, we don't want to interpose or we don't want to inject into God's plan of salvation other things and other people and other requirements. It is what Christ has done for us. He's the one who fulfilled that law. If indeed you will obey my voice, you will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we are. We're all priests through Christ because he's the high priest. We're all the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. So take a look at Hebrews, say, for example, what did I say, 8? Did I say 8? Okay, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, this is God. And here he's quoting uh, the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of his, none his brothers, saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away what's interesting is at the time this was written the, the temple was still standing and there were still priests and a high priest there carrying out the ministry and he's saying don't go back to that. It's over because that's the first covenant and that's been replaced by Jesus. And you are the temple. We're the temple. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And then maybe we could look at one other one here. Um, chapter 9. Look at uh, verse 18. <clears throat> Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And then there's more like that in chapter 10, but for the sake of our time, we, I'll let you look that up yourself. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and therefore he ushers in a new covenant that will be an everlasting covenant. And um, I, wanted to, I wanted to finish by asking uh, everybody here tonight, do you have assurance of salvation? Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about the full assurance of faith. And sometimes some people struggle with doubts and they wonder and they fear, um, am I really saved? Uh, um, when I believed, was it true? Was it sincere? Was it genuine? And we stumble and we fall and we go wrong. And then the Lord brings us back and we ask forgiveness. If you can grasp what the Bible teaches here, your salvation and the assurance of your salvation cannot be based on a feeling. I feel like I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. But it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is looking at what we've looked at tonight and saying, that's how I'm saved. Not by what I do or what I can do, but what he did. He did what only he could do, something I could never do, and paid my debt and provided my righteousness, my obedience to the law, which, pff, forget it, I'm hopeless when it comes to my obedience. I'm not righteous. I'm not worthy. But he is, and he died on the cross for my sins, for he had no sin, and his obedience is my righteousness. So, you see, we are saved by what somebody else did for us, and we're saved by believing him and trusting in him who overcame death by his resurrection. And it was all the plan of God, just like he says, now, the God of peace, you know, the one who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, you know, the one who is that great shepherd of the sheep, the one you can trust, and he will take care of you and lead you and guide you. And it was all through the blood of the everlasting covenant, and he will make you complete in every good work to do as well. He will work in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. All through, once again, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here it is. This is the only place in this letter where the covenant is described as eternal. As he finishes the letter, he makes it clear I'm talking about the everlasting covenant, which means there is no possibility of the new covenant in Christ of ever becoming obsolete or of another one being needed. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Who he is and what he did, trust in him. Don't worry about your feelings. Just believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant who've met death and overcame it for you and for me and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we close this time thanking you 
This was a lot to look at tonight, of course, and pray, Lord, that it would not be overwhelming, but illuminating, enlightening, and will help us to have assurance that we're certainly saved by grace, by what you have done, through faith, faith that you've given us. You've opened our eyes to see this and believe this, and that, Lord, it is by faith in you, Lord Jesus, alone. And we trust you, and we rest our souls and our bodies and our now and our forever with you, Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. We pray in your name. Amen.